We are in John chapter 7. Let's begin reading in verse 1, if you will. That's not what I wanted. That's what I want. Okay. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. And now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. In the first six chapters of the Gospel of John, we've been able to see the impact of Christ's life, both in the bustling city of Jerusalem, which also includes the religious center of the temple, but also in the rural hillsides and the shores of the Galilee. And through the next four chapters, chapter 7 through 10, John will show us the implications or the effects and the consequences of Christ's life by Jesus expositing the Word of God, as he will in chapter 7, by Jesus exposing the wickedness of men in chapters 8 and 9, and by Jesus explaining the true way of life, as he will in chapter 10. But more specifically, as we begin to look at our text, we need to keep in mind a few things. First, remember that in chapter 5, while Jesus was in Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders wanted to put Jesus to death because he not only healed a layman on the Sabbath day, but he also claimed to be equal with the Father, making himself God. And so, secondly, Jesus withdrew to the area of Galilee. And that is where we pick up our study. And so we go back now to verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. And now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Verse 1 prompts us to ask the question, after what things? After these things, it says Jesus walked in Galilee, but after what things? Well, if you were here for the last nine weeks, we know that uh, much of what uh, this refers to is what Jesus did in chapter 6. 
Because certainly this is after the events of feeding the 5,000 men and their families, the walking on the water by Jesus to reach his men who were struggling to get across the Sea of Galilee, uh, the declaration that Jesus was the bread of life, and if a person wanted that life and satisfaction, they must partake of him. And so after those things, Jesus walked in Galilee. And may I say that he just continued to walk. He continued to do the things that he was called by his Father to do. And let me just add to the understanding of the second part of verse 1 that the phrase, for he would not walk in Jewry, is not some kind of racial statement made by the King James translators. In fact, it was used in reference to the root word, yodaios, yodaios. Uh, there's no J as far as in the pronunciation in, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Greek, and so it's yodaios, just as, as we know that the name of Jesus in, in the Hebrew is, is not with a J, but with a Y sound, Yeshua. And uh, so we have this yodaios, which is used actually for Jews in general, uh, Jews or Jewesses in particular, like a Jew or a Jewess. But then as a whole, the word Jewry was used back in the King James time. But it also spoke of the area of Judah. Why they used the word Jewry is probably because of what the context of all that is taking place. The Jewish, uh, I should say, um, if you look back at verse 1, it says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. And so Jesus didn't go to Judea immediately because the Jewish religious leaders wanted him dead. And the tense of the verb sought refers to continuous action. In other words, they kept on seeking to kill him. They kept on wanting to do that. It wasn't just something that infuriated them, and after a while they kind of calmed down, you know, and, and said, well, you know, time heals all wounds, and so we'll just let Jesus get by. No, they were very adamant in finding Jesus for, this, for the very purpose of executing him, as if to say that he had broken the law of God. As for the mention of the Feast of Tabernacles, this provides for us a timeline of sorts. We won't spend time dealing with the Feast of Tabernacles today, but we will one day. We did a few months ago do a complete teaching on a Wednesday night of the seven feasts of Israel, the important feasts of Israel. But this this mention of, of, uh, of the Feast of Tabernacles is, in fact, to give us some sense of time. Because back in John chapter 6, verse 4, we were told that it was the time of Passover, back when all these people were there in the Galilee region, and they were, many of them headed certainly down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So that was what was happening at the beginning of of chapter 6. And now it is several months later, uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering. And if this was well into then the earthly ministry of Jesus, that would mean then that, this, that the cross of Jesus Christ was less than six months away. For then at this point in time, we, we, have, we have seen Jesus now go through uh, at least two and a half years of his ministry, now in his third year of his ministry and heading toward Jerusalem uh, for uh, his crucifixion. So we would have to know that so much has already taken place in the life and ministry of Jesus, which would also give reason for the animosity that had already built up against Jesus, especially by the Jewish religious leaders. And we have to remember that it isn't just in the Gospel of John that we see the increase of this animosity. There were a lot of things written between the times that we're dealing with here from the Passover to uh, the Tabernacles, which is about six months worth of time, that many, many things had happened. Because in the months that Jesus walked in Galilee, he had discussed the whole question of Pharisaic and ceremonial cleansing and food. Uh, If you remember when Jesus said, you know, it isn't what you eat that that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of you that that is unclean. And 
And, uh, and then he spoke of them, uh, to them of the principle of revelation and tradition, uh, first in Mark 15 and then in, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 15, Mark 7. Uh, during this time, he healed the Syrophoenician mother's child, and he also healed a, dead man, a deaf man, and many, many more were healed during this time. Uh, as well, he fed 4,000 more people with seven loaves and a few fish. More significantly, in Caesarea Philippi, the disciples, by the mouth of Peter, confessed their faith more explicitly than ever before. We saw that in Matthew chapter 16. Again, all of this within that uh, period of time. Matthew 16 is when Peter is, well, actually the disciples is, are, are asked the question by Jesus, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who said, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so all of these things are significant events that happened during this time. Add to that then the next chapter of Matthew, Matthew 17, where Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 17, I believe I mentioned. And so all of this is taking place within this course of time. So Jesus walked for six months in Galilee, but he didn't just walk. He walked and he did what he was called to do. And he did so knowing that the authorities in Jerusalem were utterly hostile toward him, and he had, had neither forgotten or forgiven the, uh, they had neither forgotten or forgiven the assertion of his claims when he was last there during that unspecified uh, feast, which many of us believe was one of the Passovers before that last Passover, yet more than likely it was a Passover. The hour for the final conflict now was in a state of suspension. Jesus said, my time is not yet full come. My time has not yet come. And that hour for the final conflict was in a state of suspension until he had preached more explicitly the divine gospel of love and redemption and had left the indestructible seed of the gospel in human hearts. In other words, Jesus had not become idle or withdrawn from ministry. And that's uh, something good for us to learn from. So often we face various trials and struggles and tribulations in our own lives. We face them, and many times we put aside what we know God has called us to do. And though we don't know everything that happens on a day-to-day -day basis or what is going to happen, God does know, then it would be of best, of our best, to our best interest that we would trust the one who knows what's around the corner for us and just continue to serve the Lord as he calls us. So we are neither to become idle or withdrawn from ministry knowing that things are not going to get better, but they are, in fact, generally speaking, going to get worse. We see this happening in, in, in the prophetic sense today, but that should never deter us from serving the Lord. It should never get us to do things, you know, that, uh, that change the course of what God has called us to do. And as I said again, God already knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end for you and for me. So we can truly trust in the Lord as Jesus trusted in his Father. But a voice does arise. A voice arises from his very own earthly family. A voice of mockery and a voice of unbelief. Consider as we go on into verse 3 where it says that his brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and, and go into Judea that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly if thou do these things. Show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Now, contrary to Catholic doctrine, Joseph and Mary did have other children. 
And you have to consider that this was an added blessing given to this precious couple. But we're told in Matthew's gospel, and, and it's very clear in the language now, sometimes, you know, we, uh, we can say, as, as, as is often uh, defended and from the position that Mary didn't have any more children, that, that well, any, any mention of brothers and sisters was really mention of cousins or, or some, somebody relatively uh, in the family but, or relatives in the family. Uh, but, it's, it, but it's also very clear that it can, can be very definitively brothers and sisters from the text. So in Matthew chapter 13 verse 54, just so we, we will see uh, the very fact that there are uh, other siblings of Jesus, and, and that would be half-siblings, in other words, of course, uh, they were half-brothers and sisters in Christ. It says in verse 54, and when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, and so much that they were astonished and said, and this is speaking of the people that were listening to Jesus, whence has this man this wisdom and, and these mighty works? I mean, in other words, where, where do you get these, this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the, the carpenter's son? Is, is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, or Judah, or I should say, uh, well, Judas, yes, and uh, James and Joseph, Joseph and Simon and Judah. And his sisters, notice it also mentions sisters. Are they not all with us? Certainly if they were cousins, they wouldn't have to be distinguished by, by gender. And whence then has this man all these things? So it would not be far-fetched then to say that the attitude of Jesus' brothers and sisters was one of extreme concern and even embarrassment. His claim to be the Son of God more than likely embarrassed them to no end and, and led them to think that he was beside himself. You know what that means, right? Ever, ever been told, well, you know, you're just beside yourself. Well, there are some people that actually are beside themselves because it means mad or insane. And they thought that Jesus was either mad or insane by the things that he said. On one occasion, the, the rumor of madness caused so much pressure from neighbors and friends that they actually traveled a great distance to find him and to bring him home. Mark chapter 3, verse 31, there, there came then his brethren and his mother and standing without, which means standing outside of where Jesus was, sent unto him, calling him. And, and the multitude sat about, about him, and they, they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without, uh, seek, seek for thee. They're, they're here for you. They're, they're here to take you home in a rubber, uh, you know, cart or whatever. Put on a little vest for you. But in the instance in our text, Jesus has to listen to the advice of his brothers, who were insolent. They were, in other words, rude, rude and, and disrespectful. And certainly they were presumptuous. They were arrogant in what they were saying and how they said it, audacious in their comments. They were, in effect, challenging Jesus to go up to Jerusalem to the feast and to do his marvelous miracles there. They suggested that he was failing to help and to strengthen the disciples that he left there whenever he withdrew. And that if he really wanted to be acclaimed the Messiah, if you really want to be acclaimed as the Messiah, the Son of God, well, you just have to prove yourself in the center of the nation. Go to Jerusalem. Don't stay in these little ho-dunk towns around here. Go down there where the people are, where the temple is, where the religious leaders are. Prove it to them. They scoffed at Jesus. You're never going to be famous when you hide like you're doing. Listen, if you're so great, brother, then go prove it to the world and especially your own people. That's hard for us to believe that his own brothers would say these things to him. And while we know that at least two of his brothers did get saved after the death and resurrection of Jesus, James, who became the church leader in Jerusalem and wrote the epistle of James, and Jude, who wrote the epistle that bears his name, 
it's not uh, outside of reality, really, to believe that all of them came finally to see him and to trust in him as their Messiah. I want you to consider, of course, that in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says these all continued, and of course, speaking of those who waited for Jesus uh, at, um, and, and waited for the promise of the Father in, uh, in Jerusalem in the upper room before Pentecost, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. But here in John 7, None of them believed. And we're told that very clearly. None of them believed Jesus was the Messiah. And they did their best to taunt and to challenge Jesus as, as jealous brothers tend to do. Now here's the question I think that, for, you know, that, 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 that really uh, uh, kind of shakes us up here in, in, in this uh, particular situation. How had they failed? How had they failed in seeing his godly, righteous, and undefiled character growing up with him? How could they not see? How could they not have been told who their own brother was? Well, maybe they considered Joseph and Mary to be <laughs> kind of crazy too. Now it's possible we don't hear much about Joseph after the birth of, of Jesus, so it may be that he had passed away early in, 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 in Jesus' life and in the lives of his other children. But we can't put it all on Mary either because Mary would have been one to be very clear about who Jesus was. But then you have to consider how they grew up around Jesus because he was so perfect. He never sinned. Even as a child, he didn't sin. They'd all be playing, and everybody got scratched up, and Jesus was nothing. And then Mary would have to go and correct some of the kids for the things that they were saying out to the other children in the neighborhood. And he said, you shouldn't be saying that because, you know, you've got to... And then, but they, they, well, Jesus never said anything, you know. So maybe you can see how things kind of built up in their minds about being around somebody so perfect. Maybe it was hard. It was certainly hard for the disciples. The disciples really had a hard time with Jesus. When Jesus would calm the, the seas, you know, after some great storm, and how he did it, The response, like Peter's response, was, is, is so classic. Oh, Lord. I, I, you know, this, this, I'm just not worthy to even be here, you know. Go away. <laughs> Had to have been hard. But certainly not impossible. They had to have known who he was. But they still made a choice not to believe in him. In Hebrews 7, 26, this was his life in his, uh, in his growing up. This was his life in his ministry. This was his life to the very end on this earth before he reveals his, his power over death by the resurrection. For such a high priest became us. For such a high priest became us, took upon himself flesh, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Separate from sinners in, 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 in respect to how he lived his life, but not separated from his family. So you would think, well, what kind of response is he going to give to his brothers who are giving him this kind of heartache by the things that they were saying to him? Some of us might think, well, Jesus, you should have just, you know, you had the power, call down fire from him and get rid of him and have a whole bunch of other brothers and sisters raised up. But no, well, Jesus' response 
to this mockery, to this ridicule and sarcasm and unbelief? Here it is, verse 6. Jesus said unto them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. And notice this. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go you up into this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. So he tells them, you go, you go on to the feast. And they did. And he stayed just a little bit longer in the Galilee. And Jesus tells them there was not time for his acclaim. Because that was really the context of what they were saying for him to do. Go down there and show who you are. But it's not time for his acclaim. It was not time for the world to accept and to acknowledge his claims and his works. Not yet. It wasn't time when, when many would proclaim him the Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When, when many would bow, acknowledging that his claim to be the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, was true. But the day was coming. There was a time appointed by God. A destined time. Take note that this isn't the first time that Jesus makes this statement that his time was not yet come. You go back to the wedding feast in Cana in John chapter 2. And there it says, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto, unto him, they have no wine. And, and Jesus said unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. He said, mine hour is not yet come. Used an interesting word for hour there. Oh tell you in a minute but not in an hour now take note that Jesus had, had taken the mockery and he turned that mockery into a teaching situation he used the very point of mockery against his claims and works and made the claim again there would be a time there would be a day which he would be acclaimed but not then contrast this with what he tells his brothers in verse 6 he says, but your time is always ready. My time is not yet, but your time is always ready. The time for man's acclaim is now. Your time, man's time, the world's time today is a day for your acceptance and for your acclaim, for being received and recognized, for honoring and receiving honor. That's the world today. In effect, his brothers were not committed to God the Father's will as Jesus was, so they could come and go as they pleased. This is what he's telling them. I can't come and go as I please because I obey the Father. What he's saying to them is, you're part of this world. So you go and you come as you please. Sadly, that is the way it is with many people even in the church today. To go and to come as they please. We'll go to church when we want. And when it suits us. And when I'm too busy and when I'm too, too uh, involved in one thing or another, you know, I'll, I'll, just, I'll go, you know. What are we doing? We're presuming upon God? We're not taking seriously what he wants us to do and, and being in fellowship and being in, in the study of his word and needing the word of God as we do today. And what that's done is it's weakened the church. I read an interesting statistic and, and that uh, is that 35% of people that go to church only read 
the Bible when they go to church. And they only read and hear the Bible when they go to church within what is what was considered as an average amount of time, 20 to 25 minutes. I don't know what church that is. That's not here. And that's a, that's a sad statistic because it gives indication truly of where the church today, the evangelical church, quote unquote, is when it comes to the word of God. But for many years now, many, many churches have put the word of God aside, at least the teaching of the word of God. Oh, well, they have Bibles sometimes and uh, you could probably blow some dust off of some of those. But it isn't encouraged. And even today with movements like the emerging church that, that really don't want you to have, you know, a, a lot of Bible study. I mean, and, and they talk about that in, in, in a sense. They say, well, you know, all those, those, those churches that, jo that study the Bible all the time, that, there's, there's a problem with that. There is. The only problem there is is if you don't listen to what's being told by Jesus and, and by the prophets and the apostles and what God has given to us for us to learn and to understand so that we can live our lives in a way that gives honor and glory to God by every breath that we take and by everything that we do. But it's a sad commentary of our day. These brothers of Jesus grew up going to synagogue, they grew up in the traditions of their fathers, but they mocked their own brother, who was, in fact, the Messiah of Israel. It should be noted that the word for time is the Greek word kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, and it's often interpreted as an as an opportune time. And so many think that this is what Jesus is saying. My, my opportune time has not yet come. And, and it's not the word ora, H-O-R-A, which is, by the way, the same word for hour in Spanish. As in Jesus' hour in chapter 2, verse 4, where he said, my, my hour has not yet come. It's a different word. Ultimately, it was not time. It was not time for his acclaim. But more importantly, before that acclaim could even come, it was yet not time for his public manifestation on the cross. And that's what's missing here. Not by Jesus. Jesus will make that very clear. But to his brother's contextual statement of, you, you know, if you really want to show yourself to be who you are to your people, you need to go to Jerusalem. It was done and said in a very mocking way. But Jesus said, my time hasn't come for that. Because for that to happen, the first thing that must happen is that I must die for your sins and for the sins of the whole world. And then I must be placed on a cross and lifted up. For if I be lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all men unto me. Then the acclaim will come. Then will the bowing of the knee be to Jesus. But it was time. It was time for the world's works to be proclaimed evil. That is what Jesus said. It is time for the world and its works to be proclaimed evil. He said in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but me it hated, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. 
It was time for the world to react against Jesus, but not time for his acceptance. It was time for him to point out the sin of the world, which his brothers were certainly part of, because he says the world cannot hate you, but it hated me. It was time to point out the false religions of the world, not to proclaim, or, or not to proclaim its hypocritical goodness or the, or the hypocritical goodness of all religions as people are doing today, even in the church. It was time to point out the depravity of the world, not to camouflage the truth. It was time to point out the corruption within the world, not to paint a rosy picture. It was time to point out the need of the world, not to praise it. It was time to point out the destiny of the world, not to hide its fate. And because of this, the fact that he proclaimed the truth, the world hated him and would not acknowledge and acclaim him. It was time for the world's reaction against him, not time for its acceptance. Consider that today, before the return of Jesus Christ to gather his own unto himself, the world mocks, ridicules, criticizes, rejects, and treats Jesus Christ sarcastically. In other words, the world does not hate, but welcomes opposition to Jesus Christ. It brings to mind that statement that I've heard actually recently, you know, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Man can be at each other's throats, killing each other until the Christian walks into the room. Or someone who proclaims the truth of Jesus Christ. Then all of a sudden, enemies become friends. That's a generalization, but nonetheless, it's true. And we're seeing it happen more and more in this world. We're seeing it happen more and more in this country today. Where religious, uh, using the term religious loosely, but where religious freedoms are being challenged each and every day. This is the time and the day when the works of the world must be proclaimed as evil. The truth must be preached and proclaimed by God's people. It isn't time for certain sections of the church to start walking hand in hand with those who are committing abominations before God. And then saying that these things are, well, they're okay, you know, we, we want to be kind and, 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 and you know, we want to be fairer to people, you know. The Word of God is not based upon fairness, it's based upon justice and truth and righteousness and holiness. Consider what Jesus will say in John chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. He says, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not, they had, not had sin. In other words, if I hadn't come and pointed these things out, well, there, there wouldn't be any sin to deal with. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Now they have no excuse, no way to cover it. No excuse for their sin. But then he says this, he that hateth me hateth my father also. Now, that's a tremendous indictment, but it's a true indictment. And Jesus was making that very clear and very plain. Therefore, when you tie this together with his own brothers, what is he saying of them? You're rejecting me. But in effect, you're rejecting the Father. Romans chapter... 1 verse 16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God, it says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. We could go on and on. It would take us the rest of the time to, to read on, but you all can read this on, and you all probably have read this before, but everything that is said after this pertains to a lot of things that is happening today in this world, and especially even in our country. When it comes to the sins of men, where from the very beginning, the Lord, you know, calls homosexuality a, a, um, an abomination, 
And what have we done in this past year? But made an abomination the law of the land. Well, it may be the law of the land, but it's not the law of God. And that's the higher law, and that's the only law, and that's the true law. Romans 3, verse 23. Paul says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Not some have sinned. Not most have sinned. All have sinned. Then he says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's never forget that. But it's important for him to say the wages of sin is death. It was the prophet Isaiah, and I, and I carry that burden always of the Jewish people today who will read many portions of the Torah and the Tanakh in, in synagogue, but this they will not read. Isaiah 53. This is the gospel according to the prophet Isaiah when you read this passage. But here in verse 6, it says, he said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, on the Messiah, on the Lamb of God, the iniquity of us all. Later on in Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf in our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You know, that's, that's the, the power of sin. The people don't want to deal with it anymore. You know, they'd rather, you know what, uh, you know, it's not so bad. God's forgiving. God will forgive me. People don't want to live with the weight of the conviction of the, of the Holy Spirit, which is a good thing, by the way. It's a good thing. Don't ever get to the time when, when, you know, because we're all human, because we all make our, our blunders and our, our mistakes, but thank God for the, you know, for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus told his brothers to go up to the feast while he, while he would be staying for a short time in Galilee. But please understand that Jesus was not lying to his brothers. He, he, didn't, he didn't say he wasn't going. He, he, he just said, in effect, that he was going, but not just yet. <laughs> which, which leads us now to this last, this last section that we're going to look at today. In verse 10, it says, But when his brethren were gone up, they went, uh, then went he also up unto the feast. So it's not like he says, uh, you, you all go ahead and go, I'll come later, and then I'll, I'll come. You know. But he did come. That's the point of this. Uh, he did come. When his brethren were gone up, then when he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. And then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? So they're continually seeking Jesus to kill him. And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said he's a good man, others said nay, but he deceiveth the people. Well, those things are being said today as well. In John 7, verse 13, it says, Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. So you have two sides. You have some people say, well, he's a good man. And others say, well, no, he's deceiving people. But then it says, Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Nobody really wanted to say anything about him because, you know, the Jews could misinterpret what you're saying or, or whatever, you know. You might, or you might uh, uh, show that you have some inclination of, of, uh, of believing him. So, you know, they didn't, want, they didn't want trouble with the religious authorities. But the Jewish religious leaders recognized that Jesus would come to the feast, as Deuteronomy required him to do. It says in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, there uh, three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, whether well, it is. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. In other words, they would come with their, their offerings. But the point here is that these religious leaders, religious leaders, 
Who should know that God is not just a God of, of, of justice, but a God of mercy and a God of grace and a, and a God of truth and a God of love? Instead, they, they, they take advantage of this law. They take advantage of it and they say, you know what? We can wait. We can be patient between Passover and, and, and the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll just wait. He's got to come. We want him. And we'll just wait. And the time would come. Now they're really looking for him. Now they're ready to pounce on him if they see him. Or anybody associated with him so they can find where he is. Because they're going to take him in. And so they sought him. Not to receive him. Not to receive his teachings, but to capture him so they might put him to death. But they, but they didn't find him. Being that he didn't present himself openly. Why? Why didn't he present himself openly? Because his time was not yet come. Pertaining to the last two verses of our text, there was no neutrality. There was no neutrality as it related to Jesus. You were either for him or you're against him. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. And, and, and here's, here's a truth that we sometimes fail to understand. When we're silent... We've chosen against him. When we're silent, we've made a choice. There's no neutrality. And let me say that when we deal with the absolutes of the word of God, I'm just saying, because we have to carry this understanding through because this is God's understanding for us. There's no neutrality when it comes to Israel either. Just saying. Some of you getting what I'm what I'm saying? We can't say, well, you know, I've got a, you know, we've got this presidential race going, and people are saying, you know, you know, try to get more votes. I want to, you know, be neutral about this thing. We're trying to be on both sides. We can't be neutral about Israel. The Bible doesn't allow us that. We can be merciful with others who we need to to know Christ, but when it comes to the situation today in Israel, we can't be neutral about it. We can't be neutral about Jesus either. That's the point. You're either for him or against him. And even today, people have all kinds of opinions about Jesus that are meaningless without a true relationship with him. And as I said, by not taking a stand for Jesus, you are really against him. So this is where we are here at the beginning of chapter 7, and I, I just want to close with this verse, but I may not. <laughs> and that's Matthew 12, verse 30. Because even Jesus himself said this. He said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scatters abroad. I don't, I don't want to be a part of anything that scatters others abroad away from Christ. I, I want you to be with him. I want you to stand for him. To be bold for him. To be courageous in Christ in these last days. Because, because there is today um, an attitude of, of a seeming neutrality when it comes to Christianity. And that because we've watered down the Word of God. Uh, man has watered down the Word of God in churches today. And we're not taking that word to be what Jesus meant, what God meant, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us, it means. 
we have lack of discernment in the church today, the discerning of spirits. We're not doing what the Word of God says when it says, test the spirits to see that they're of God. Test them. We're not doing these things. So when I mention to you this issue of biblical illiteracy in, in the church today, that is one of the main signs of, of this, uh, uh, this lack of discernment. It, it's, it's, it, it just comes down to the very fact that we are biblically illiterate as a, as a whole in what is considered the evangelical Christian church. I don't want that to happen here. And I'm not going to let it happen. We, we, but, you, but we all need to make that commitment to stay in the Word of God, to feed upon the Word of God. The Word of God is, is, is our food, the food of our souls, the food of our spirits. I, I made a comment last night. I said, you know, you look at me and you say, that guy never misses a meal. And that's true, I don't. But I don't miss a meal from there either. But I have to work at that. It has to be something that I have to work at in the sense that I, 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 I love the Word of God so much, I've got to stay there. I've got to stay there. So we have to look at our priorities in the church. And God forbid that we would ever grow up around the Word of God and then walk away as, as the brothers of Jesus did. Of course, later to come back, but, but it's not worth. It's not worth the pain of the consequences of walking away from God's Word. It isn't worth it. Stay in Christ. Stay in the Word of God. Read the Word of God as food. Pray when you read. God, give me the wisdom and understanding here. And what I don't understand, you know, that's okay. The secret things belong to you. But what you have revealed is good for us, and we need that. So stay in it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Let's pray.